This is episode 93 of the Walking Closer podcast. And this episode is part three of a series of episodes where I'm attempting to give you information that may challenge your perspective when it comes to reading and interpreting the Bible. And I'm attempting to do this by maybe helping you become more aware of some cultural concepts and norms that I believe shed light on what is actually being said in the text. Now, I'm not an anthropologist or a scholar of social sciences, but I do believe, or I I find immense value in these fields and believe that they are invaluable in uh, helping us paint a more detailed picture of what is going on in the Bible. And and let's face it, we have many challenges when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible. We have gaps we have to fill in and hurdles that we have to jump when it comes to interpreting the text. And Now, if hearing me say this makes you uneasy, I talked a little more about this in part one and part two of this series, and so I encourage you to check those out as well. So, We do have challenges, but they are challenges that can be overcome, or at least some can be mitigated through a better understanding of the culture, an understanding that goes beyond just what kind of houses they lived in, or what kind of clothes they wore, what kind of food they ate. Now, while these can be helpful and quite interesting, we we need to dive a little deeper and try and understand what their worldview was, what motivated them, what drove their behaviors and social interactions, and what what values guided their everyday life. Now, these are the things I love to study, and, and I want to share some of my own findings with you. And what you're going to see is that what drives us in Western civilization, some of the core values we have, They are quite different from those living in the Middle East during the times that these texts were written. And if you want to imagine a more, should we say, accurate scenario, something that is more in line with what actually may have actually happened, if you want to imagine a more accurate scenario as you're reading the text, here is something you'll need to understand. If you were born into a Jewish family during biblical times— You were born into a system, a way of doing things and seeing the world, a way of seeing your own life and your place in the world, a a system that predetermined who you were, who you would grow up to be. So you were born into a system that had already allocated a certain amount of honor and shame to your name, and it's what we call the honor-shame society or honor-shame culture. Now, within the honor-shame framework— you learn a certain contentment. You learn to accept things as they are. And this is who you were born to be. So be it. you, You may have been born into a family that carried with it great honor and prestige that came with that honor. Or you may have been born into a family that had limited honor and, you know, expectations of who you could be. They were limited to whoever your father was and his father before him. And with this, you you learn to be content. And and in fact, it seems a core value of the system was contentment. Contentment with even the limitations of the family into which you were born. Now, just because you accepted those limitations doesn't mean you just threw your hands up in the air and gave up on life. 
Instead, you sought to live to your fullest within those limitations. So let's bring that into our own time. So if you were born into a family where, let's just say your father was a welder, you would be expected to be a welder and to shoulder whatever honor or shame came with that. Certain expectations would be placed upon you automatically. And with those expectations, there would be limitations. Like you would never be considered as, let's just say, a prime candidate for Congress. You wouldn't have the proper pedigree. And in fact, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even entertain the notion of ever doing that anyway. In fact, there was, there was no, you could do whatever you want to do or be whoever you want to be. You were born into a family of welders, and that is what you will do to help the family business and help take care of the family. This was, this was your part of, of life. This is part of your role. This is your place in life. And your honor was essentially your worth, your value. And you learn to live according to whatever it was. You were even aware of the limitations of your honor, which means you learned to live with a certain amount of shame. But you would do whatever it took to preserve or enhance that honor. And if you didn't care about maintaining that honor or even living according to the, let's say, honor code, then you would bring shame upon yourself and even your family, which then they may be forced to take certain actions in order to restore their honor. In fact, Jesus warned his disciples that they may find themselves in situations like this with their own families. Uh, it's why I believe he said things like, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household, and anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy. You see, the family ties woven in with honor and shame are extremely powerful, and following Jesus could cause family to think, that you've abandoned them, and in in doing so, your actions would be perceived as shameful. And uh, these these family ties, man, they can be so strong. They they can be strong enough to make you back out of following Jesus, okay? So these passages, like in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, that I just made reference to, they need to be read through the filter of the honor and shame culture and the family dynamic of that culture. And doing so helps us better understand what Jesus is saying and how it would have been received, or potentially re- received, um, by those hearers. Okay, I, I think it would be helpful at this point to look at a biblical text through the honor-shame lens. So, let's look at the time when Joseph finds out Mary, Mary is pregnant. Okay, let's let's go back to that. Let's look at uh, Matthew 1, 18-25. What I'm going to do, I'm, in fact, I'm not sure, sure that there's a better text uh, to introduce this, or maybe you just, maybe you've heard this before, but to look at this, um, I don't think there's a better text. So what I'm going to do is read it and point out some things as it relates to this honor and shame as uh, we just make our way through the text, okay? So Matthew 118, let's just start there. Matthew says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Now, if you stopped there, okay, just stopped there, immediately what would come to the mind of the listener or the reader is that, oh my goodness, wow, what shame. How could she do this? Okay, It would have given a certain perspective, even emotion, 
uh, would have been stirred up by listening to or reading the story of the birth of Jesus and how his mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they actually got married, uh, before they came together, before she moved in with him, she's pregnant. See, but Matthew adds she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, and so that kind of eases a little bit of the shock of the situation. So right away we have a problem, okay? Mary and Joseph have a contract on their marriage. Now, we sometimes say being pledged or betrothed was like being engaged, like what we see as being engaged. But honestly, it's really not. Uh, it might be the closest thing we have to, to relate to it, but it's really not the same at all. Um, while putting an engagement ring on someone's finger is a sign of commitment for us, it's a much softer commitment than a betrothal. See, a betrothal was more like a contract, and that contract wasn't considered complete until the bride and groom move in together. And these contracts were taken very seriously because a marriage wasn't just sealing the deal for a couple, okay? Marriage was joining two families together, and the honor of both families would now be linked together. And in order to break a pledge, a divorce was needed. See, you could break an engagement, and you don't have to go through any kind of system, any kind of courts. There's no shame necessarily, uh, and there could be some shame depending upon why it was the engagement was broken off. But even then, um, those things don't stick. They don't hold on. You know, it's very common for, especially in our our culture, uh, for divorce and you know to happen. And uh, you know, breaking off an engagement is nothing. So, but in this culture, completely different. So you didn't just call off a wedding. There could be some serious consequences to this. And getting a divorce, getting a divorce could start a blood feud between the two families that were being joined together. And their honor, you understand, their honor is on the line and must be protected. And feuds between families could last for years. We're talking generations, okay? So this is not something you take lightly. Now, Mary would have ex have expected to have been a virgin uh, at this point. Okay, she's in a contract to be married to someone, but now she is pregnant, and it's not Joseph's child. So the story begins with what appears to be a bit of shame. It would appear to Joseph, okay, from Joseph's perspective, when he finds out that she's pregnant, that Mary has broken the pledge, and in doing so did not live according to what was expected of her. It would appear to Joseph that Mary acted in a dishonorable way and has brought shame upon herself. And so, you see, this pregnancy presents some problems for Joseph. So let's go on. Matthew 1.19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, or some translations say, or a righteous man, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, to the ancient Israelite, there were a couple of ways to define a righteous man. Okay, a righteous man could be talk could be simply be talking about a person who was doing their best to observe the law, or it could be talking about someone who went beyond just basic law observances, but went above and beyond what was expected, like like some of the Pharisees and their observances of things like washing before meals, etc. Now. It's clear that Joseph was just an ordinary man who was doing his best to observe the law. 
and this was his heritage, the the system he was born into, and you know, as a Jew, and as such, living according to the system to the best of his ability was a part of maintaining his honor. This is what would have been expected of him. And now, he finds himself in the middle of a predicament. And regardless if they could hide the pregnancy until after the wedding feast, customs would require them to produce a blood-speckled sheet to the wedding guest after they consummated the marriage, which would happen during you know that this wedding feast. Now, in Joseph's mind, this is going to be a problem. Now, remember at this point, he has no clue to what's going on. Okay, in his mind, Mary has slept with another man. So while thinking through what to do, imagine Joseph trying to think through all the various scenarios and realizing that they would not be able to produce this bloodied sheet, and this would bring shame upon them both, but especially her. Now, I think the fact that he's willing to do this privately says a lot about him and says maybe a lot about how he feels about Mary, and I think that it's very creates a very, it opens the door for creating or imagining very plausible scenarios that maybe even Joseph was trying to see if there's a way to, you know, stay with Mary and work this out, work it through, um, without bringing the shame. Is there a way to get through this, Um, you know, and by maintaining their honor in some way or another? Uh, but at the very least, we see that he is trying to bring about the least amount of shame. Uh, you see that through the way that he acts. And so while thinking through what to do, you can just imagine Joseph trying to think through all the various scenarios and then realizing that they would not be able to do this um, in such a way that would not bring shame upon both of them, but especially Mary. Uh, but Joseph didn't want to expose her to that level of shame, and so he'd started to make plans to divorce her quietly, okay? Now, there would still be some level of shame, but it seems Joseph thought doing this would be the best way to bring the least amount of shame upon her, and all of this is based on what we understand about the honor-shame culture. Now, it may not reflect everything that actually happened, and there still may be some gaps, but what we are imagining here is more based on their culture and not our own. Okay, so let's keep going. Now, Joseph has found himself in a predicament. He is concerned about honor and shame and has tried his best to come up with a solution that brings about the least amount of repercussions. So in verse 20... After he had considered this, so he is making plans to divorce her quietly. After he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So if Joseph has a dream, and he finds a solution. You ever notice how sometimes the solutions to problems come to people, especially in the, in the biblical text, right, in visions or dreams? And this is a common occurrence in the Bible. So the solution to Joseph's problem comes in a dream. 
where he learns that Mary didn't cheat on him, and she has not brought shame upon them. She actually remained an honorable person because God was behind it all. And so the situation appears to be filled with shame, but the shame is dampened by the fact that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And I believe as people who are listening or reading to this story, you know, we're talking first century specific Jews, this is Matthew's account, hearing that Joseph's solution and him coming to understand what's really behind all of this happens in a dream would have affirmed what Matthew is saying here. Because, again, it was a common occurrence. It was believed that through these visions and dreams that God spoke, solutions were given, affirmations, etc. And so this would have continued to build the case that Mary indeed did not act in a shameful way and that how they respond to the situation, the solution uh, actually was a divine solution and God was really behind all of this. And so she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it's I'm, I'm told that in the ancient Hebrew mind, anytime you talked about the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it always made reference to power. And so it's by the power of the Spirit she um, was pregnant. So in verse 22, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then Matthew uses a quote from Isaiah seven fourteen. And here it is, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, to get the impact of this quote and the place that Matthew uses it, we need to go back to the situation in Isaiah. You have to look at Isaiah 7 in light of 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. Um, because these are the sections of Scripture where you're going to learn about the time in which Isaiah said um, this quote. So here it is. The children of Israel were divided nationally at this point. You have Israel to the north, or the northern kingdom, and you have Judah to the south, or the southern kingdom. Israel and Syria have made an alliance to attack Jerusalem and overthrow it. And in turn, they want to put a puppet king on the throne. But Ahaz, the king of Judah... Uh, he's freaking out. You know what to do about all of this. And this guy has already sacrificed his own son. Another section says he sacrificed his children. Um, this guy is, you know, worshiping Baal. Um, and instead of trusting in God, he's seeking alliances elsewhere. And it's within this context that Isaiah says what he says about the virgin birth. And when Isaiah mentions this, make no mistake about it. He was talking about something that would happen then, okay? And the circumstances surrounding the statement, they're not good. And in fact, he says, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, both Israel and Syria will be laid to waste by Assyria. And so it seems that when Isaiah mentions this, he is talking about something that would happen shortly. And so we need to consider how Isaiah is using this statement first. See, if Matthew had never mentioned this statement, I don't think that when we read this, that we would immediately, when we read Isaiah 7, we would immediately, you know, think of the Messiah. We would immediately think of Matthew 1, 23, um, in that scenario. And so let's first begin to try and understand this and how Isaiah 
okay, would have used this statement first. So when you look at King Ahaz, okay, so this remember this. This statement, <laughs> this statement is made, and the situation is not good, okay? And it first begins with Ahaz. When you look at King Ahaz, you know, what kind of king he was, this guy did some pretty shameful things. He did not go down in the history of Jewish kings as an honorable son of, of David, okay? He did not trust in God for leadership and guidance, and even when Isaiah pushes him to trust in God, Ahaz refuses. The story, it just has shame written all over it. And that is what you would see if you were reading or listening to the story of King Ahaz. Okay, Even though King Ahaz, though, refused to trust God, Isaiah basically says, here's a sign from God. The sign is essentially pointing to an amount of time. You have a woman who is pregnant and gives birth. Now, there's, the people will debate whether or not the word that Isaiah uses here or that's, that's here in the original text is either a virgin or a young woman, a uh, young girl. Uh, in fact, you know, there's arguments that can be made for, for all sides, and at the end of the day, I think your theology and your, 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 what you're trying to prove really determines um, more than not. It determines how you think that word should be translated. But there's arguments for all sides, and I'm not going to get into those arguments here. In fact, again, I think that if, if it wasn't for Matthew, um, I'm not so sure that there'd be much of a debate here. So this sign that he says is essentially pointing to an amount of time. You have a woman who's pregnant and gives birth. But some, uh, sometime in between the child being born and the child maturing to a point of being able to refuse evil and choose good, something dreadful is going to happen. See, there is this picture of desolation of the lands and a depopulation of it. The, uh, the places where crops used to grow will be overgrown with thorn bushes and wild animals. The, the plots of land that were cultivated for crops will be overrun by wild animals. The people who are left behind basically are surviving off of curdled milk and honey because well, that's all they have. And so by the time the child grows to a certain point, this is going to be the picture. It's a, it's a pretty bleak picture. However, the sign is pointing to the fact that God is still with them. They are still able to survive with an abundance of milk and honey, and the lands that were once farmed can now be hunted. Okay, so there is this sense of... God is still with us and has not abandoned us. That sense is woven directly into the story that seems to be extremely bleak okay, and devastating. Now, with all that being said, how is Matthew using this statement? Um, there are some similarities in both stories. Ahaz was a shameful person and not only brought shame upon himself, but upon the house of David. And the situation with Joseph and Mary appears to be one filled with shame as well. At least it appears to be, okay? Ahaz had a problem and was trying to figure out a solution. Joseph has a problem who was seeking a solution. But I think Matthew is using the statement in a very similar way that Isaiah used it. The situation, it's not looking good, okay? It's not looking so good. It appears to be one marked by shame, but even in the midst of that shame would come something that was 
let's say, honorable. God's honorable character would break through in the midst of something that appeared shameful. And while it would appear in the case of Isaiah that all is lost and God had abandoned them, God ultimately acts in a way that demonstrates something else. See, he acts in a way that upholds his honor. And in the case of Joseph and Mary, Matthew paints a picture of while the situation may have seemed bleak because it was riddled with shame, in all actuality, it was God's doing. Not only were Joseph and Mary acting in honorable ways, what was actually happening was a part of God fulfilling promises made. So you see, this was God upholding his part of the covenant with Israel. And in doing so, he was upholding his honor. So in both cases, both in Isaiah and Matthew have shameful situations, but from out of the shame would come honor. Now, is this a perfect depiction of what is going on? Well, probably not. And you might be listening to this and trying to poke holes through it and seeing gaps. However, what we're doing here is interpreting the text based on their cultural perspective and not so much ours. And while our conclusions might only be plausible, they, I believe, are more in line with Middle Eastern scenarios or perspectives. And quite honestly, that's the goal, to try and see or, or understand what they would have imagined when reading or listening to the text being read. That's our goal. And once we do this, then with an awareness of our own culture, we can begin to bridge the gaps between the two. And again, uh, is this a perfect explanation that answers all questions and removes all gaps? Well, no. In fact, as we continue on, we have additional questions or scenarios to explore. Look at this, verse 24 and 25, back in Matthew. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph getting up doing what he was told to do does not remove all of the potential issues that he was going to have to face. Does not remove all of the 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 perceivable shame that would come upon them both. Okay, so Joseph takes Mary as his wife, but doesn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. So how did all this work? Mary's pregnant, and. We can safely assume that on their wedding week, she is probably showing. And even if she isn't, what about the sheet speckled with blood that acknowledged to everyone she was still a virgin? What did they do about this, right? Uh, did they even go through with a traditional wedding? Like, we're uncertain. We don't know. But i tell you this, regardless of what happened, both scenarios we mentioned here, whether she was showing and it was obvious when people knew that she had pregnant before, you know, they had actually consummated the marriage like in the normal traditional way uh, or if you know the ability the inability to produce this speckled sheet this blood speckled sheet to the wedding guests um, both of those scenarios have a certain amount of shame that would be upon them that they would have to shoulder because of this okay so while we're not certain about all the ins and outs of the situation they still would have to shoulder some shame here. Um, but regardless, what this does demonstrate, at least to me, is their trust in God and willingness to shoulder this perceived shame 
that that is you know how others would have perceived the situation. And uh, man, when I look at that from my own cultural perspective, that trust, right? That that willingness. When I think of what it is like for others to believe something about me, uh, or maybe about you, like when we th- just think about that, when we think of what it's like for others to believe something about us, and what they believe, what they believe is not the truth, and you know what it is that they say about you, but they don't really know you, and they don't know what the truth is. Yet you have to carry that truth around with no one knowing. And there's no way you can convince them otherwise. That feeling, that emotional burden, you're carrying around the truth, but also carrying around with this perceived notion, this perceived shame um, of what they think. And it's a lie. And, you know, the feeling and emotional burden, like being able to do that. When I perceive Mary doing this and Joseph's willingness to stand by her side, um, in our culture, that's honorable. Like, what a man, right? What, what a, what a, what a, what a woman. What, man, the ability to do that and go through with that. What does that tell us? Okay, um, those are principles that we can grab and apply to ourselves. So, there it is. There's an example for you to consider when it comes to reading the Bible in light of one of these areas that we need to better understand and understanding their culture, that is the honor-shame culture. So as an example of what that possibly looks like, okay? So there it is. And uh, yeah, that's it for this episode, but... Hey, we're not done. We're not done with this series. So be watching for part four as we continue challenging perspectives. Grace and peace, and I'll talk to you soon.